Thank you, praise team, for leading us. Casey, for finding this service. What a great, great new song. He is sovereign over us. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel in chapter 4. 2 Samuel 4 will be in 2 Samuel 4 and 5 this morning. Uh, grateful to you, church, as Amy and I took Jackson and dropped him off in uh, Pine Mountain, Georgia last week for his gap year experience with Impact 360. So grateful to our friend Todd Blackhurst for preaching last week. However, I have to say that is an incredibly difficult sermon to follow. It was only 20 minutes long, so, <laughs> so don't get your hopes up this morning, okay? Grateful for Todd, grateful for their ministry, and look forward to having him back here uh, in Amarillo area in the next month or so after they're spending some time toward the Metroplex and other areas as well. Well, I'm sure that most of us have heard the term a vacuum of leadership before. It happens when there is no legitimate leader or no recognized voice influencing a group or an organization in the way that it should go. Now, sometimes a vacuum of leadership happens during a transition. During a transition from one leader to another, something kind of falls to the side and maybe other voices come up or maybe no voice comes up and then people kind of do what they choose to do. Researchers suggest that a vacuum of leadership exists when that exists, things like low morale or lack of cooperation or divergent goals or poor direction and infighting can become common. And the negative effects of a vacuum of leadership are true across various leadership contexts. For instance, we readily associate a vacuum of leadership in, corp in, corp in corporations or in businesses, but it's not just that, right? In a corporation, if there's a vacuum of leadership, it may struggle with employee retention or pro productivity or even worse, the corporation may be run into the ground. But it's not just businesses. I mean, it's also sports teams. Often, if the right voices aren't leading the charge, aren't leading the people, then the players have struggle to have the same goals, or perhaps they're more concerned about their own contracts, or more concerned about their own stats than they are the success of the team. But it's not just teams, it could be churches. Without the right leadership, the church will fail in its mission of making disciples what God has called the church to be about. Without the right leadership, the church may follow the cultural norms rather than biblical truths. Of course, it's not just churches either, it's families. Without the right leadership in family, families can drift apart. Children can rebel. And since the basic unit of society is the family, it's safe to say that societies suffer when the right leadership isn't in place. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that in our studies of First and Second Samuel, one of the major themes that we've seen is this very theme of leadership. Now, in the previous weeks, we've seen the beginning of a transition between King Saul and King David. This morning, we're going to be seeing how, among other things, a vacuum of leadership is the impetus for David being recognized as the one rightful king of Israel. So if you will, please stand as we read together, beginning here in chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. We'll read through the end of chapter 4. 
When Ishbosheth, son of Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more... When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and then they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And he took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Will you pray with me? Lord, give us wisdom this morning as we look to your word. We pray that as we look to this idea that leadership matters, that you would help us to recognize the roles that we play in our own lives and how we have influence over others and that we would be men and women and boys and girls who exercise great leadership in the way that we follow you, in the way that we seek you, in the way that we point other people to Jesus Christ, who is our hope, who is our good shepherd, the Good shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, by way of reminder, Ishbosheth was a son of Saul. He was made king by Abner. You recall that Abner was the military commander of Saul's army. Abner was a powerful man. Abner had a lot to gain to, by keeping one of Saul's sons in power, in the kingship. And that's exactly what Saul, that, what Abner was doing. He was pulling the strings to put Ishbosheth in power. Interesting, we don't know how much this king, Ishbosheth, knew about Abner's demise. We don't know much about Abner, about Ishbosheth, actually. We don't know. He didn't play a huge role in the narrative, even if he was king of Israel for seven or so years. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and 9, Ish, both his names was Esh Baal, son of Baal is what that means. 
Most scholars believe that because the term was so closely related to pagan worship with the Canaanite family or fertility god, the Hebrew editors changed this a little bit to make it say Ishbosheth. Now, the name Ishbosheth means man of shame. This is the one who Abner put as king of Israel. And recall that Ishbosheth alienated Abner by accusing him of taking one of his late father's concubines. And this angered Abner. And Abner threatened Ishbosheth and said, Look, I'm going to go help David become king because that's what God said all along. So we understand that Abner goes to the king. He works out something there. He's going to have this political, political thing to try to get the elders of Israel on board. And then we know that Joab, the military commander of King David's army, secretly and without David's knowledge, kills Abner out of revenge. Now, as we read the narrative, it's very clear that Ishbosheth was not a great leader. In actuality, he was something of a puppet king, put in place by the true power player, Abner, who was the military commander, of course. Ishbosheth was a man of Shame. Now, with this in point, we come to the first thing that we should think about, and this this. Poor leadership invites chaos. Poor leadership invites chaos. As, chaos. As we begin chapter 4, we learn that once Ishbosheth heard of Abner's death, his courage failed. Literally, it's saying that he lost his grip. He did not understand what was going in line. His, his morale completely left him. He was afraid. He was scared. He was filled with fear. We don't know if he knew everything that happened with Abner, how he died, and what he was up to in this thing. We just know that he was almost paralyzed with fear. And according to the narrative of 2 Samuel so far, the kings of the northern tribe, the northern tribes, Ibosheth, spent his time fighting David. So there was this civil war of sorts going on, but the narrators have told us that King David and his kingdom was growing in influence and growing in power, but Ishbosheth and the northern tribes, they were decreasing in influence and decreasing in power. He was not a respected king. He was a man of shame. So much so that two of his own men, captains of the raiding bands, decided to take matters into their own hands. In the vacuum of leadership created when Abner defected to David and then was killed, there was chaos. There was no direction. And I imagine Ishboth is sitting there on his throne without a clue of knowing what to do next. Infighting led to these two wicked men assassinating their own king in his own home. Now think about that. One of the main issues with a vacuum of leadership is the fact that no one can control who's, who will step up and fill a vacuum. No one can control whose voice is going to be the loudest voice. Think about that in terms of gardening. If you're a gardener and you like to plant flowers or vegetables or whatever it is you like to do, and there is an empty space, what's going to happen in that empty space? The weeds are going to grow. That's why we have so many work days down there in our, in our community garden, right? Because the weeds are going to grow. Well, same thing in a vacuum of leadership. There is going to be a voice that comes up, but whose voice is it going to be? 
And what is that voice going to lead people to do? What is that, how is that voice going to encourage people? Is it going to be a, a voice that points people to Christ, that points people to our God and leads them in the right direction? Or will it be a voice that is going to help to cause even more chaos? What happens in the absence of leadership is that things turn chaotic. And most of the voices that come up are self-centered voices, desiring their own needs or their own wants to be met, not necessarily the good of everyone. And I'm not just talking about politics like we see here in the kingdom, I'm just talking about businesses. When parents even fail to love and lead their families according to God's plan, families will be affected. Families will suffer. When sports or travel or leisure or whatever becomes more important than the church, it doesn't take long for things to start kind of going a, a wire at home, going the wrong direction. The values of the world quickly become more appealing and more enticing when we fail to prioritize what matters most. And even in churches, when church members live in hypocrisy and are unwilling to exercise spiritual gifts or become divisive when they don't get their way, churches suffer. When friends are unwilling to speak truth in love to their friends, in difficult situations or in relationships, when people go along with the crowd rather than following Jesus Christ, when people fail to stand up for the hurting, chaos results. When there is a vacuum of leadership, when there is poor leadership, chaos results. Friends, I want to encourage you, whatever the context, whatever opportunity you have, lead by example and live in such a way that promotes truth and that promotes love. Lead in a way that honors Christ, placing value on what Jesus places value on. And you may be thinking, I get it. Well, I'm not really a leader. I mean, that's just not me. I would remind you that while you may not have a title, you have influence. Someone is watching you. Someone is looking at you. Is it your grandchildren? Is it your children? Is it your coworkers? Is it people in your social groups? Is it parents of the kids who are on your kid's sports team? Is it employees? There are people, friends, who are watching you, and you have opportunity to lead by example, to point people in the truth, in the direction that matters. But secondly, we see from this passage that wise leadership pursues justice. Wise leadership pursues justice. You notice that I skipped over verse four and the information about Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. We'll return to Mephibosheth in chapter nine, but for now it's safe to say that the author includes this very narrative statement to show us that Saul did not have a son or grandson who was fit to sit on the throne. And that's one reason why Rehab and Baana came and they murdered Ishbosheth because they didn't see that there was anything going on, so they just took matters into their own hands. So they beheaded Ishbosheth and took his head to David, thinking that they were the bearers of good news. Notice what they say again there in verse 8. And we brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And the king said, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord. 
the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. What's interesting, friends, if we think through the text, is that David never sought the life of King Saul. He didn't treat King Saul like an enemy. He didn't try to, he didn't have any thoughts to kill Saul's relatives. And David's initial response to these two men must have sent cold shivers up their spine. Essentially, he says, do you know what happened to the last person who brought me news that they thought was good news that was about my advancement? They were killed. See, David never sought to advance God's plan in his own power. He fully understood that God would bring his will about that God would work his way. He admitted here that it was God who redeemed his life from all the adversaries, that it was God who was his helper, that it was God who was his savior. And because of that, David continually rested in God's plan and rested in God's timing. So David sees right through these two men. He understands that they were wicked in their killing of the person that they would say was their king. He understands that this was no act of war, it was simply murder. So David has them killed, and probably in part to distance himself from the acts of these two wicked men, he has their dead bodies hanged by the pool of Hebron, why? So as to show that justice matters, and to show that he had no part of this. Friends, wise leadership promotes justice. Wise leadership doesn't use theology or doesn't use the Bible to excuse sin. Isn't that kind of what the sons of Ramon were doing here? Look what God did for you, David. Just check it out. Just see, God has brought justice to you. God has avenged you. God has, has done all of this for you. But David understands better. He understands that the ends don't justify the means. He understands that we can't engage God, we can't engage in sin and then give the Lord the credit. And unfortunately, it is a plague on Christianity and on followers of Christ that lots of sin has been committed in the name of theology, in the name of the Lord. Things like the Crusades, things like slavery, Things like extortion and abuse, just to name a few. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, Theology should be truth that motivates us to worship God, not a technique that enables us to justify our sinful actions. So whatever the leadership context that you find yourself in, whether it's business or whether it's church or family or a social organization, remember that wise leadership promotes justice. Wise leadership leads with compassion and love, yet it upholds truth and it acts according to truth. Wise leadership steers clear of prejudice and steers clear of favoritism and treats people according to truth. And when it comes to discipline, wise leadership seeks to implement redemptive strategies with the good of others in mind, always according to righteousness. Now next, we see that God's leader will be established. God's leader will be established. Now I want to draw out two main thoughts here. The first is that it's God who brings about his purposes, and second, 
is God who is always faithful to his promises. So God always brings about his purposes. Think about the way in which the characters of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, have sought to bring about a kingdom. They've sought to bring about the will, whether they thought it was God's will or their own. Think about how they sought to bring about the kingdom. Abner and Joab sought to establish God's kingdom through war. Abner sought to establish God's kingdom through political means, right? Attempting to rally the elders of the Israelites so they would go and support David. Joab sought to establish God's kingdom through vengeance and killing Abner, who had earlier killed his own brother. Now here, the sons of Ramon seek to establish the kingdom through their treachery, through the murder of Ishbosheth. We need to know that our attempts to manipulate situations never bring about God's will. Our attempts to manipulate situations, to enact our wills, never bring about God's will. God will bring about his will in his way and in his time. What do I mean? Well, we'll think about how we work in our lives trying to bring about our wills. Business leaders, church leaders, parents, friends, etc. can be guilty of trying to work behind the scenes to push what they think is the best way forward. Some people put more confidence in their behind the scenes conversations than they do in prayer to the one true and living God. Some people think that if they complain loud enough or to the right people, then they'll get their way. Some church leaders think that acquiescing to the loudest critic will calm things down. And some church leaders can be tempted to just go with what is popular because it's just easier that way. Some business leaders want to doctor the books because reality doesn't look so good and they don't want that to come out. Some parents think that keeping the peace just means giving kids everything they want and not addressing the heart issues, not addressing the real issues. But friends, that never brings about the right results. And what we see from this passage is that God will establish his will in his time, and his will is for David to be king. So these two wicked men, they, they kill King Ishbosheth, and then they bring the head to David, and David's not happy with it. He doesn't think this is the right thing, but let's go on to chapter 5. And we'll see what happens in the aftermath of it as God is bringing about his will. Read the first seven verses. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led it out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to king at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will even ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So what do we see here? We see now that the, the elders of Israel are recognizing what's happening, right? David, your bone of, 
and of our, you're bone and flesh. We're just alike. We, we are of the same people. And, and not only that, David, when we fought before, it was always you. Even as Saul was the king, you were the one who was leading Israel into battle and out of battle. And, and God secured the victories. And, and you will be my shepherd. Now, what do you think David was thinking? David was like, why didn't you recognize this 15 years ago so I didn't have to live on the run for so long, right? They're all coming together right now. They're all figuring it out right now. And now they want to throw their hat into David's kingship. The second thing we need to see here is that God keeps his promises. He had chosen David to be king some 15 years ago, and now he's bringing it about. But we also see another promise being fulfilled in this text. In chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, we see that David is taking the city of Jerusalem. This is the most important city in Israel, and it will be going forward. But back in Genesis chapter 15, God, when he's giving this covenant to Abraham, gives him or tells him that he will give him the promised land. And God specifically includes the land of the Jebusites, or Jabus, Jerusalem, in that promise. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 21. Now, when the Israelites began their conquest of the promised land under Joshua, they fought against the Jebusites. However, in Judges chapter 1 and verse 21, it's clear that the tribe of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem. So, Here's the promise fulfilled. David comes to Jerusalem and he drives out the Jebusites, who, by the way, were very arrogant. And they said, look, even the lame and the blind, they could defend this city. You had a, a great wall. They could defend this city against you, David. But David comes and if we were to read there through verse 12, we would see the strategy and they overtake the Jebusites. And this now becomes the city of David. This is Zion. This is the most holy place where God would ultimately put his name there. Friends, God will establish his leader. God establishes his will. His purposes will not be thwarted. Nothing will get in his way. Not an enemy, not time, not circumstances, not anything. God will establish his leader. God has established his leader. More on that in a minute. But finally, we see that humble leadership seeks godly counsel. Humble leadership seeks godly counsel. The rest of chapter 5 actually records two separate battles with the Philistines. Previously, Israel was occupied with what might be called this civil war between the house of Ishbosheth and the house of David. But now a unified Israel presents a greater threat to the Philistines, so the Philistines want to attack. And what I want you to see is that David understands his dependence on the Lord. He seeks the Lord in both battles that are recorded here in this chapter. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. 
And when the Philistines came up, David sought the Lord again. That's what we see there in verse 23 and 24. And David inquired of the Lord again. And this time the Lord said, you shall not go up, but you shall go around to the rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the treetops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So two different battles here. The first time David says, should I go? Yeah, go. I'm going to give them into your hands. And he goes and he does. And then the second time they come up and the Lord says, well, we're going to take a different tactic this time. This time I want you to go around the back. But when you hear the sound in the trees, and friends, this is a reference to the Lord fighting the battle for them, then you are to go. Then what is David doing? He's showing that he's humbly depending on the Lord. He's seeking the counsel of the Lord. He's not taking matters into his own hands. And friends, humble leadership will always seek godly counsel. Humble leaders understand that they don't see everything clearly. Humble leaders understand that they need help. Humble leaders understand that they are not the primary force behind accomplishing the will. No, they understand that they need God's direction. They need the, the input from other people who are seeking the Lord. They need to humble themselves and allow the Lord to lead them. Friends, the fact that we are invited to a relationship with God, to pray and to seek him makes all the difference. It is the fool who does not seek the Lord. It is the fool who does not seek out godly counsel in our decision making. No matter how small or how big, may we be people who are humble and who seek the Lord, who bounce off ideas from other people. Whether we're talking about business, ministry, parenting, or anything else, humble leaders seek godly counsel. What keeps us from that? Pride thinking that we know, thinking that we're better, thinking that we're beyond the input, maybe the rebuke at times from other people, thinking that our way is best. No, whatever the context, friends, may we be people who seek godly counsel. That's what humble leaders do. Now, let's just be honest. The focus of the text is King David. But we need to recall that King David is not the ultimate king or even the primary example of leadership. David is a pointer to the ultimate king, to King Jesus. And when we consider the elders of Israel, what they said to David in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 there, we see that we are actually looking at someone who is greater and better, King Jesus. The one who is like us who is bone and flesh, who became one of us. As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter two, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus God takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. The, the elders of Israel, they, they said, hey, Abraham, you're, you're one of us. And friends, we say, Jesus is now one of us. God has taken on flesh and blood. 
He has humbled himself. And beyond that, just as the the elders of Israel credited David to be their military leader, the one who would lead them out and, and bring them back into battle, it is Jesus who is the victor. It is Jesus who has defeated sin and death in his perfect life, in his submission to the will of the Father, in his substitutionary death, in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the one who delivers us from the ultimate enemy and from the wrath of God to come. And friends, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd of God's people. Jesus, the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for the sheep, He is the leader that we need. If we fail to see this and fail to put our hope in Jesus, then we miss not just the ultimate point of the text, but we miss the ultimate hope in life. Because without Jesus, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And the wrath of God remains on us. But if we will recognize our sin, if we will confess our sin, and our need for a savior and put our trust in Jesus' finished work, then we will be forgiven our sin and promised eternal life. This is our hope. Jesus is our hope. This morning, if you've never called out to Jesus for forgiveness, this morning, recognize your sin and put your hope in the one who lived and died and rose again on your behalf. I'm gonna pray in just a few minutes. And then we're going to sing a song. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus and know forgiveness of sin and eternal life, then come and talk to us. If you're interested in joining this church or you're interested in just having someone pray with you, we would love to pray with you here. But you're certainly welcome to that if you're here with someone you know and you just want to seek the Lord together. We would encourage you to do that. If you have questions about baptism because you are following Christ, we would love to talk to you about that as well. We're here for you wherever you are, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. For these moments, we say thank you. For your grace, we say thank you. Because you are the leader that we need and the leader that we have, we say thank you. For the fact that you humbled yourself. For the fact that you laid down your life for us. For the fact that you are sovereign over us, we say thank you. God, move in this time. Work in our hearts. May we be more set apart for you and for your glory. And may your spirit empower us to live our mission of proclaiming Christ and making disciples. Do this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing?